Blog Talk Radio. as much as we want in reality. 
They do all these horrible things and nobody can stop them. And you have this illusion, this dream in your head that what if, what if there was somebody like Caitlin Strong out there? What if there was somebody, a Jack Reacher? Well, ISIS doesn't mess with Jack Reacher, but they mess with Caitlin Strong when they come to Texas and Strong Cold Dead. And not to give anything away, but she proves to be every bit their equal. Yeah, when and, and there's a good thing because when you bring in the modern element of the ISIS, and of course that's on everybody's mind, and, and, and ISIS is just another organization that's just for terrorism, which has been around since the beginning of time. So to think that you're going to eradicate ISIS, okay, maybe, but terrorism is never going to be eradicated, which is something that, you know, you just keep bringing, which is something that, you know, is just going to keep revolving. But what I like about it is what you've done is that you've added the Indian reservation aspect to this, which all in itself is a complicated aspect, which I don't think a lot of Americans understand what an Indian reservation, what life is on one now today. And of course, you know, you also have Caitlin and you have court and you have the, you have that kind of relationship side going on. So how were you able to intermingle? And I mean, the challenges that faced you when you wrote this book. It's a great question. I start out when I start off a book and when I'm and when I'm developing it, when I'm even when I'm writing it, I'm thinking of two things. I'm thinking of the structural core, what is happening? And then I think of the emotional core. What is affecting the characters? How are they changing? How are they evolving? What are their flaws? And in this one, what I like to do with Caitlin and and I think you've made a great point. The way I do it is this. Caitlin is essentially a gunfighter. She is a modern-day Wyatt Earp, a modern-day Wild Bill Hickok. She's the, the, she's the sheriff in the town trying to keep order. That's the push in her character. That's her tradition. She's the loner, classic loner hero. She's a female Jack Reacher to, you know, the movie, of course, the second Jack Reacher movie opened yesterday, so that's, it's a great illusion right. to make today. But on the other hand, there's the pull of her character, and that is she has two teenage boys who have become her surrogate sons, because of her, her boyfriend, who's this reformed outlaw, Court Wesley Masters. So she, that's the pull, the maternal instinct. One of my favorite books that I've done in the series is Strong Rain Falling, because in Strong Rain Falling, she goes on a college visitation trip with her oldest surrogate son, Dylan. And there's nothing more parental or maternal you can do than take a child to visit colleges. And of course, in the middle of their trip, she gets in a gunfight. And the twist <laughs> is that the killers weren't coming after her. They were coming after the boy. And that made, that really, that, and that's a perfect example how I blend the emotional core of the books together with the structural core of the books. How characters are being moved. To, to jump ahead a little bit, um, in the next book, which is called Strong to the Bone, because I know your readers, you have a lot of writers um, I'm, I'm really going into a hot-button issue of sexual assault. We learn in this book that Caitlin was sexually assaulted when she was in college, something that left an indelible mark on her and was one of the reasons why she became a Texas Ranger herself. She's a fifth-generation Texas Ranger. Everyone else in her family has always been Texas Rangers, but it wasn't necessarily in her plan. And in the present plot, that's the emotion. That's what we reveal about her emotionally. Structurally, the rapist or the sex, the man who sexually assaulted here, her, appears to have returned 
10, 15, 20, I think it's about 15 years later. So that's how I marry the two things. If I have a formula, that's the formula. I want to do both things. John D. McDonald was once asked, what is a story? And he looked at the writer who asked him that question and said, care about. And that's what I always remember. A lot of thriller writers, all thriller writers are great with the stuff, but not all character thriller writers are great at making you care about their people. And the reason why we, we gravitate so much to the Brad Thors and the Steve Berries and the James Rollins and the Lee Childs and the David Morrells and the Sandra Browns, they're all great storytellers. What separates them apart is their ability to continually to challenge their characters that they're developing emotionally. And many of these, with the exception of Sandra Brown, all those authors are doing series. And you alluded to this point before, and that is the fact that it's even more challenging to do it book after book after book in the same series than it even is if you're doing a standalone. Because how do you avoid the been there, done that syndrome? How do you keep each book fresh, not just in terms of what's happening, but what the characters are going through and how they're evolving. And that's something I always try to keep in mind. And if you don't grow your characters, if you don't continue to challenge them and yourself as a writer with what's happening in their lives, then you're doing yourself a disservice. And more important, you're doing your readers a disservice. Now, one thing I'm going to ask you here is, so when you're tackling that issue of sexual assault, are you afraid that you might get women to say, how dare you do that? Because you don't really know what it's like from a man's point of view of how to get that emotional part into it on a woman's point of view. So I, I don't think I could be asked a better question than that when dealing with such a hot button issue. It's not the first time I've done it in strong light of day, which is uh, the, the, which came out two, which is two books ago, strong light of day followed by the most recent strong cold dead. Mm-hmm. Then I'll go back to, I want to answering your question two different ways. The first way is, I took another big risk. I had one of, court, one of Caitlin's surrogate sons, her younger one, come out of the closet um, mm-hmm. and realize that, and, and come out and say that I'm gay. Um, this was something I had never done before, but it cast that entire book with an emotion and a quality and how do you deal with something that isn't as, as, as big a deal necessarily as it used to be, but it's still something that for parents is something they have to deal with. With sexual assault, it's an entirely different issue. But the idea is, and the answer to your question about am I worried about how women perceive it, I'm not worried if I do the right job, if I do justice to how Caitlin responds and how she emerges from what happened to her stronger, how she deals with what happened to her. On the one hand, as the daughter of a Texas Ranger, on the other, as, as, a, as an ordinary college student, um, who has this terrible thing happen to her. I, I would look at it a different way. I would look at it as drawing attention to, to this topic. I would look at it as, as trying to be the kind of writer who's not afraid to touch on stuff like this. Because what you asked me, am I afraid, am I concerned? If you start only writing about what, if you start saying, well, I can't write this because people might get upset. If I might alienate people, I might not handle it well. If you start asking yourself that question, you are no longer letting your characters work, do your work for you. You are no longer trusting your characters to 
deal with situations in a way that the audience will relate to. Um, the one exception to that I will make is, po- is politics. I think writers need to be very, very careful in this politically charged, supercharged, politically correct age over taking political stands in fiction. You can have yep. your characters do whatever you want, but if you're, polit- if you're wearing your politics on, this, on your sleeve when you're writing fiction, then you're trying to, you're making a point instead of telling a story. Uh, Jack Warner used to say, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. So in touching on <laughs> issues like coming out of a boy coming out of the closet or a woman being sexually assaulted, the key is not to be sending messages, but to be telling a great story that is supplemented by the crisis or the perceived crisis in someone's life and not what happens as much as how they deal with it. That's the difference. It's how the characters deal with it. It's not the stand that I'm taking and I'm not trying to exploit anything by doing it. I'm trying to challenge my characters to make my books better. And, you know, and, and I don't, and I think that's like a, the perfect answer. And, you know, Jeff Ayers and I, you know, we do be on the cover and we talked about that on our show also is, do, do some authors go too far to let you know if they're a Democrat or a Republican and where they stand on things? And is that right for the fiction or just write a nonfiction book and tell everybody what you think? You know, I think people want to read fiction and get away with books like yourself to, to get outside of that. We hear enough of it, especially the last, you know, three, whatever, 10, 12 months, however long this has been going on. And I don't think that they want to hear it when they read the fiction. Now, you can, you, know, you can put little nuances in there, but I think that you're right. The story has to be what is being told and not what well, you think it, it, the it, world it, should be. A gr- truly a great point, John. I would go by this rule. If you can know the politics of the writer by what he's writing or she's writing, then there's been a mistake. You shouldn't know someone's politics. Now, some of my closest writer friends are, are, have been – like I'll give you the perfect example. We lost him far too young, one of the nicest people and one of the great writers and storytellers of this era. That was Vince Flynn, um, Vince Flynn whose yeah. books have been – whose Miss Rap series has been picked up if, you know, by, but with, with, uh, seamlessly by Kyle Mills, who's a terrific writer too. Vince, Mitch, uh, Vince Flynn never would have become the author he was success-wise if it wasn't for Glenn Beck. If it wasn't for O'Reilly, if it wasn't for some of the Fox News people who championed his cause. Now, I can't tell you today, well, I could because I know Vince pretty, I knew Vince very well. It wasn't what Vince's politics were, it's what the hosts perceived his character's politics to be. It wasn't that, that Vince was, right, was doing a right wing rant in his books. What he was doing is he was pitting his hero against really bad guys mostly terrorists basically what thrillers are are comic books crossed with westerns westerns in the sense that our heroes are all loner gunmen um who say you know who save the town save the country save the world save whatever but they're also like comic books in the sense that in real life we don't get to win to win all the time the Nazis, it took a long time to beat the nazis but when superman was fighting them in the comic books it didn't take him as long my point being that the thriller is cathartic in the same way a comic book is cathartic because we get to, because the good guys get to win. And this is why when people say, have you ever thought about killing off a character or have I ever, ever thought about 
having the good guys lose. Well, we lose enough in reality. People don't read entertainment um, to see the same thing they can see on the news. You know, I write books for people who want to see the uh, kind of alternate reality where, you know, the good guys do get to win. And I think that's, that's what makes them fun. And it's kind of like, well, why don't we just do this in real life? Well, Caitlin Strong comes to, in one of the books, comes to Providence, Rhode Island. This is the one where her surrogate son, Dylan, is visiting Brown University, where he ends up attending and playing football, mm-hmm. uh, nice. which is close to home for me. So, and she gets in a gunfight at an event called Waterfire we have here in Providence. And she kills five people, and the cop says to her, do you know, there is, if you add up all the police shootings in the past decade, they don't equal five in the state of Rhode Island. And you just killed five men in one city in one night. <laughs> it's, it's that, so there, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of fantasy aspect in the sense that, uh, in the sense that the, uh, um, you, can't, you couldn't kill as many people as any of these characters do. And, and continue right. to serve it. You, you know, you shoot one person as a cop today, and you know you're, you're administrative desk duty for weeks. So, but that yep. doesn't matter because people don't read these books to see what life is really like. They read these books to see what life could be like. They read these books so they can project themselves into stories. I mean, this is what makes Jack Reacher the greatest hero, modern hero in literature, that he can do things that we can't do. He can go into a corrupt town where everyone's being mistreated and he can take on the bad guys who've been running that town for 20 years, uninstructed, unbothered. And Jack Reacher can make things right. And then Jack Reacher will get back on the bus and ride on to the next town. That's why Lee Child is so iconic and so successful as he is. That's, you know, you know, that's, this is why Harlan Coben's new book home. He brings back, Oh. Myron Bolotar, um, his, his, his longtime hero that he yeah. wrote about before he became a number one New York Times bestselling author. Now he's going back, and we get to see how he started. We get to back to his roots with a character who has these abilities, especially his friend Wynn. So my point is that thrillers are created. The need for thrillers and the popularity of thrillers is based in the fact that people want alternatives. They want to see the good guys prevail. Now, Karen Slaughter and I had a wonderful conversation about about a month back when I had her on the show and interviewed her. And we were talking, and your name came up because I brought it up, because today's day and age, you are seeing the woman in books being the strong person and no longer being the damsel in distress. And you're seeing that more and more happening, and you're seeing it in books like with Lisa Gardner, like with Karen Slaughter, like with these authors that are, you know, now making female characters, like you said, more like a Jack Reacher and less like the damsel in distress. So, do you think that this is going to be a trend that that continues forward? Because you know, your character is the strong woman figure that is in the books. Uh, aside from the 20 years ago, that it, used to, that it was never that way. It's, it's a great point, and it, it, you're, you're absolutely right in, in pointing out that as a trend. 
I would add Lisa Scottolini's great uh, book, yes. you know, featuring her, her lawyer. The single word here is credibility. When you're creating a hero of any kind, they must be credible. That's why, you know, uh, every hero today who's successful seems to be an ex-Navy SEAL, you know. Yeah. And you ask, well, why is that? Well, that, those characters have credibility in the sense that you know what they're capable of because they've been trained to do it and they've done it. So you believe that Mitch Rapp can do certain things. You buy into the fact that Scott Horvath, Brad Thor's wonderful character, can do certain things. If they're not that, they're, you know, it's, it's Delta Force, it's Navy SEALs. Now, when you get to women, you can't be a woman in the Navy SEALs. You can't be a woman in Delta Force or Marine Force Recon or where. So this is why I made Caitlin a Texas Ranger, because you don't necessarily need to be a big physical specimen who can fire a submachine gun to be a Texas Ranger. They come with their own degree of myth and aura. You buy into what Caitlin does because she's a Texas Ranger. If she was a highway patrolman or a regular cop, you wouldn't necessarily do that. So the key in developing female characters, um, there was uh, Chelsea Payne did a book last year called Kick, um, which I thought was, was relatively groundbreaking because of a woman who's abused, who becomes an avenger for abused women, trained herself. She's become like a character out of Quentin Tarantino. She's gone and learned martial arts. But there's a, there's a real comic book effect to that, which is not as positive as the one I was alluding to before, where it's one thing to go to see Tom Cruise play Jack Reacher in a movie and clean up five guys in the street. Yeah. You know, just take him down in a fight in, in, a, in a blink of an eye. Actually, three, because the other two always run. And that's what happens. Right. Um, yeah. It's another thing when, when um, you have a woman doing it time and time and time again against far bigger adversaries. And that's where it comes down to credibility. So I think you need to define the female action hero, because that's what this is, the female thriller hero, the female action hero versus the male action hero. It's a big distinction. It's a big differentiation just because these guys can't, women can't physically do, they're not as big, they're not as strong, and they can't have the training that men do. On the other hand, it's, it's a wonderful thing for me to work with because of what I mentioned before about that push and pull. The ambiguity, the grayness of the character, the nature of a character a character who is fighting their nature in the sense that at heart, Caitlin is a gunfighter, but in her soul, she wants to be a mother. And I think that's the challenge that thriller writers using female heroes need to walk a finer line than using the male hero. But that finer line comes with, with great rewards at the end. Now, we only got a couple minutes left, and I want to jump real quick into your new series that you're doing with Heather Graham. So oh my give, us a, give us a little bit of background of that one, too. I am so excited, I can't tell you. Heather Graham is one of my best friends in, as a writer, we have, and just she's a terrific writer, romantic suspense, hugely successful. And we'd always want to do a project together, and finally we got an opportunity to do so with, 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 a, with someone we both dearly love, and that's Tom Doherty, the publisher of Tor Forge. And we came up with a concept of something, if we're going to work together, let's both do something we've never done before. So we're doing a kind of 
YA, NA, new adult, young adult crossover sci-fi series featuring two high school seniors who are the only thing that can save the world for a catastrophic alien invasion. And the emotion and the loss, the writing with an author so great at, at human relationships and so great at male-female relationships, blending with, with my strengths, which, which is more on the action plotting line. It's just the response to it has been off the charts. It comes out in January. The first in the series is called The Rising. We're now working on the second one. It's, it's such a great opportunity for me, John, because I've never been a New York Times bestselling author. I've been a USA Today bestselling author, but I've never been on the New York Times list. And at a certain age, you get to the point where you ask yourself, Am I ever going to ha- is this ever going to happen for me? Am I ever going to achieve my dream? And at a certain age, you say, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I just have to live with who I am and what I am, and maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But to get the opportunity to write a book by someone who, who is a perpetual New York Times bestselling author allows me to do something and realize a dream I may not have other, ever otherwise. And here's the other thing. What I really want to have happen as a result of this series with Heather is for people, more people to discover Caitlin Strong. This is a great way for more people to meet, to meet me and, and get to know my work and say, hey, I love The Rising. I want to read, uh, what else has he been doing? I want to read Caitlin Strong. So it's just exactly. a phenomenal opportunity at what some, at some you know, it used to be when you, when you were 59, which is what I am now, you're in the twilight of your career. I feel like I'm a rookie. I feel like I'm just getting started. So what a great thing to be able to say at my age, after 39 books, that I have this opportunity. I just can't think of anything more wonderful, and I'm so appreciative of Heather for for wanting to do it with me and for the publisher to jump on board and take a big risk, and let's see if it pays off. Well, I'll tell you what, John, um, nothing but the best, of course. want to thank you so much for coming on. It's always fabulous conversation. And I know we always say we're going to do this, but we, we, we could easily sit and do a two-hour show, uh, me, you, and Jeff, and just sit down and just talk about everything that's going on in, the, in publishing and writing and just talk about great stories that we have. But, you know, congratulations. Good luck with Strong Cold Dead, of course, with the new series, uh, with Heather and everything else. Hey, go watch a football game, man. Go enjoy. I'm right here. That's what that music in the background you heard was the Cornell Band. We're in Providence, Rhode Island. I'll be at the Texas Book Festival in a couple of weeks, so the yin and the yang in my life. There it is. All right, man. You have a good one. Enjoy, and congrats. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon, John. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author John Land, and the latest book is called Strong, Cold, Dead. It is out now. You can get it whatever format you read it in. Go to Amazon, pick it up, uh, and it's available right now. So make sure you check out that. It's the eighth book in the Caitlin Strong series. You can just jump in wherever you want to and and just kind of read through. You don't really need to read them at all in order. John writes them kind of standalones, and and that's – and that's a great way for, for you to be able to enjoy the series. We also want to let you know of a couple other books by Stephen Price and by Louise Daughtry. Um, it, by Gaslight is Stephen Price and Blackwater by Louise Daughtry. Uh, make sure that you go to fsgbooks.com for more information on their titles, which are being called an atmospheric and haunting novel uh, about a detective's ceaseless hunt for an elusive criminal and a masterful thriller about espionage, love, and redemption. So check out uh, those books. Also, Mike Napa with The Raven 
is out. Uh, Baker Publishing Group, his book, Annabelle Lee, if you didn't read it, I mean, if you like, you know, just scary books and books that will just make you keep up at night, uh, especially if you if you go to sleep a lot and you want to stay awake, make sure you pick up The Raven and, and read uh, with Mike Napa and Annabelle Lee and go check that out by going to bakerpublishinggroup.com. We're going to take a short break. We're going to be back with our next guest. And, of course, we're going to talk to her about Lady Emily. She is back, and we cannot wait to hear what she has in store for us. Of course, Tasha Alexander and a Terrible Beauty is the name of the book. So just hold on one second, and we'll be right back. back everybody after a break of course we want to thank john land for joining us sitting in his car he was uh at a tailgate for the brown cornell football game and now he's going to be enjoying his alma mater brown whip up on cornell uh this afternoon so but it is october and that can only mean one thing yes lady emily is back and the book just released a terrible beauty on october the 11th it's the latest in the lady emily mystery series of course by our good friend tasha alexander so tasha of course, thank you so much for coming on. It's always great to talk to you. We do this once a year. We should always do this more, but, hey, how are you doing? I am great. I am always so happy when it's the day I get to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, we've been following Lady Emily now, I mean, for, gosh, the last 
seven, eight years, you know, going up. I think this is what? Is this this is thirteen or are um, we over the twelve it's, mark? Well, it's the eleventh book in the series, 11th. but it's the twelfth okay. book I've written. So yeah. Right. Well, actually, it's like thir- short... I've written another one since then too. So, but, but it is the eleventh. <laughs> we just don't series. know that one yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's you know, so a terrible beauty. It's the latest one, and of course, for people who don't know. Um, you, you write this back Victorian times, and it is definitely a period uh, writing that you do with mysteries and surrounding all of that great culture that you have going on. So tell us about you know, Lady Emily and the book for people who just finding out about you that were in a coma. <laughs> well, I hope everyone's out of their coma because no one wants to be in a coma. Uh-huh. Um, Terrible no. Beauty is a book that I have wanted to write for years. Um, you know, the series started a long time ago um, with Emily as a young new widow. And this book goes kind of back to that time. Well, it, it refers back to that time because what we see in this book um, – is Philip, uh, the Viscount Ashton, Emily's late first husband, has returned. Um, And part of the reason I wanted to do it is I've always been fascinated with the idea of of identity and how do you prove that you're yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. Partly I wanted, you know, Emily's husband, her, her, well, I can't say new husband because she's been married to him way longer than she was ever married to Philip, um, Colin Hargraves, they have a great relationship, but Colin had been Philip's best friend. He was the best man at Emily and Philip's wedding. Um, and, you know, his friend dies, and years later, he marries the widow. And they're delightfully happy. They are really intellectual equals. They are partners in the true sense of the word. But I think both of, for both of them, you're going to have a little bit of complicated emotion knowing that you have found this wonderful relationship only because someone else has died. And so that's always been something that emotionally I thought was interesting to explore. Um, Also, this book is set in Greece, and as anybody who's read the books, Emily would know, Emily is very passionate about ancient Greece, history, Homer, the Iliad, and she has a villa on the island of Santorini that she refers to frequently throughout the series, but we've never in an extended way seen her in Greece. So I thought that combining her in Greece and Philip returning would be a, a good way to put both those things into the book, you know, since I've been interested in doing that for a while. Well, in fact, to give credit where credit is due, Joe Conrath, a writer, he had said to me, gosh, I mean, it must have been like 10 years ago, you need Philip to come back. And at that point in time, it was too soon. But now Emily and Colin have been, you know, married for the better part of a decade. So we can have Philip back. Now, when you were sitting down, and you said that, of course, it's something that you wanted to write for, for so long, but... You always try to challenge yourself, and now you've kind of set, like you said, you set the book in Greece, and you brought past back into the future, and you've thrown more things at her. Along, of course, you know, there's a big mystery that is surrounding this whole, the, this whole story. So in challenging yourself to do so many different kind of emil- uh, you know, elements, what did you kind of find out about yourself as an author that you were kind of able to pull these things off and together? Well, you know, 
each book, writing each book is really different. You know, you, you sort of would like to think that the more books you've written, sort of the easier it gets. But I, I don't think that's true because if you want each book to be better, you've got to push yourself more each time. And each story needs to be told differently. Um, and for this one, one of the things that was the most challenging is that I was setting it up so that it was not so much a, a kind of traditional mystery. You know, we don't have a murder that then has to be solved. The mystery is more about this man's identity, who, you know, Colin and Emily get to Greece, go to their villa, and are told that he's there. Um, so a lot of the mystery revolves around that. But then you also have a secondary storyline. I like to do two points of view in the books. And for this one, the second point of view is, is from Philip's point of view. And so we see what has happened to him since the time he supposedly died in Africa, soon after he had married Emily. Uh, and so we get other elements of mystery there. Um, he's, he's working as an archaeologist, and he's dealing with stolen antiquities and you know some very bad people who are willing to do unspeakable things to try to take these precious objects and sell them on the black market. Um, so it was interesting to me as a writer to try to juggle these two storylines that were really different and very different from other things I'd written. Um, and I, I mean, I hope I rose to the occasion <laughs> because I, I think it, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do when you really want to push yourself to make that next book even better. Now, of course, you always rise to the occasion. I don't think you really have to worry about that. I think that I think the only thing that you have to worry about is did you think that you did it? But I know that your fans always think that you did it, so that's always important. But I did receive a little note here on Friday uh, about something, and so I want you to kind of explain. And I'm just going to say two words, and then yeah. you can go from there. Red Book Magazine. Oh, yes, they they very <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was a really nice surprise. They put the book on uh, a list of thrillers that they felt would help you prepare for Halloween. So that was so what an honor to be to be put on that list with some really other other amazing writers. So yeah, that, that, was, that was a nice know? little surprise. <laughs> Yeah, did you know anything about it? I mean, were you nominated for this? Did they just find you? I mean, did you know how the, how did the process kind of work to get you on that? I have absolutely no idea. I found out <laughs> that's when kind of the when best part. That's, that's the best part too, because you're just like, yeah, ah, that happens. No, I I found out when Judy Bubalek, a great friend of mine, and uh, probably the, one of the best readers across the genre. I mean, she knows everybody, reads everything. If you want to know what to read, ask Judy. She she was the one who pointed it out to me. So thank you, Judy. Wow. So now when you see something like that happen with your books and you kind of see, you know, how it's been picked up by a magazine and, and put out more into the masses, do you kind of think like, wow, you know what? I mean, I know that people read my books and I know that, you know, I sell my books because of this and that, but – does this give you some sort of sense of validation when you start when you start seeing these things and you start you know these things are happening without you even noticing them happening or know that they are even going on? Well, I think I mean, of course it it, it feels very validating, but honestly, you just feel so lucky. You know, there are so many wonderful books published every month, and 
you know, it takes a lot of things happening for any one of those books to get attention. And, you know, the planets have to align. And so I just feel so grateful. And, you know, it's a funny thing because, you know, you write your book kind of, I mean, I'm always home in my pajamas writing, right? And, sure. you know, I know at this point, like you said, yes, that I know people are reading it, reading them. But uh, there's a great quote from David Mitchell, who's one of my favorite writers, and in one of his books he had a sentence such as has always stuck with me, when a book leaves home, it's no longer yours. And I feel like that with my books because they go off into the world, they have their own lives, they, they you know, have yeah. people like them, people don't like them, they have their own reactions to the books. It's, it's out of my hands after my part of it is done, and it's just so amazing to kind of watch what happens to them in the world. Do, do you find it more difficult now to write with the amount of books that are coming out and to try to keep yourself above that line of water where you have a lot of books, of course, that are coming out that people aren't editing and they're just throwing out there, but you still have to compete with them because it's still dollars and eyes that people are going to read. So do you think about that when you write? Does that even go into your mind You know, during this whole process of the marketing and talking about your book and selling it and doing all of that? Or do you just kind of just let it not even worry you? You know, I, I don't think about it because I guess there are a few things. I mean, first, I don't view this as a zero-sum game. You know, there are lots and lots of books out there, and thank goodness, because we all like to read different things. You know, I could have one reader who says to me, I loved this book, it really made a huge impact on me, and I could have somebody else who says, I read that book and it totally sucked. <laughs> You're pathetic, yeah. why are you getting published? People have different, and it's, it, I, in to my view, it's not even really a judgment about the book. I mean, I've had books that I've read that I loved. I've had books that I read that I despised that then five years later I'll go back and read and say, whoa, why did I not like this? This is a brilliant book. So, you know, you have to be reading the right book at the right time. And everybody, everybody's views are different. Everybody's tastes are different. So I think it's awesome that right now we have more books than ever so that more people can find more books that they love. Um, you know, my, if, if somebody buys somebody else's book instead of my book, that's not a loss. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like I said, it's not zero sum. We don't have one writer succeeding at the expense of somebody else. I think the best thing is for people to find books they love. And, you know, if they're mine, thank you. I love that. It's, it helps me keep doing this as my career. But you've got to read what you love. And I think when you're writing, you've got to write what you love. And so it's really important to, to not get into some sort of mind frame when you're sitting down to write, thinking about, you know, who's writing what and what's popular right now. And, and you know, I, I, for me, sort of thinking of a topic from a cynical point of view, thinking what would sell, what, what's the, what are the trends right now, I don't enjoy that as a writer because I wouldn't really enjoy it as a reader. I want to read a book that the author wrote because they're they're passionate about the story and they love the characters or or hate the, you know sometimes you have to dislike your characters because some of them are very likable but sure. i think it's so important as a writer to you know yes you have to sort of have two separate parts of your brain you have the part of your brain that that writes the books and then the part of the brain that has to engage in marketing and you know going on tour and doing different things um but those are two different parts of your job. 
And I think it's important to make sure that that writing part is, is really protected and that you're really writing what you love. You know, I think that this is a, a lot of people think that this is a bad era kind of for writing because there is so much stuff going on and everybody can just throw things out there and, and, uh, and there's a lot of authors and, you know, digital publishers and places out there that aren't doing their due diligence with authors and throwing out some, you know, good stories. I think the opposite. I mean, I think that this is a great time for readers, for books and you know, to be able to go out there and find almost anything and everything on a topic that you want. You're going to find somebody wrote about it, and you're going to be able to find anything that you want. What I don't agree, what I don't think is, and I'm just curious, you know, I'm just going to get off topic of books, but I think this is a terrible time for television. Oh, my oh. Lord. <laughs> yes. I, can't, I can't stomach any of these flipping shows right now. I mean, if it wasn't for live sports, I wouldn't even need cable. Like, why would I be watching this crap? I mean... So, I mean, I'm just curious, you know, what are you watching? Are you watching anything? Is there anything that's kind of gotten on you that, you know, you, you like, got to sit down and watch and you, you got you to make sure you see it every week? Actually, it's very funny that you ask me that because I have spent the last probably five days desperately trying to find something to watch to no avail. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Netflix now, and, and, and Hulu and have... Amazon and all these places, and there's nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's hard. And maybe there is something to that there's so much that it's hard to navigate it. But, you know, which kind of goes back to some people saying about there are too many books and how are they, you know, how are they being published and what's the quality. But I think I'm just not as good as search, at searching out TV shows as I am at searching a book. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I haven't it had is- cable. You know what? I canceled when my son was born. 17 and a half years ago, uh, I canceled my cable because I wanted, I, I, you know, I was, I didn't have a lot of money and I, I just, you know, you've got a budget, you've got a new baby. So I cut the cable and I've never had it again since then. But now it's so, you know, you can stream everything. So everything. So, but yeah, I just, the last, this past week, I've really, if you find something good, let me know. Well, you're talking to the wrong person here. I mean, I still watch Old Murder, She Wrote in Columbo for entertainment, and I've seen those shows 150 times, but it's still better than watching one of those stupid shows once. Um, Yeah. It seems to me that, and you you see trends with books, and you do, and and you see it with, you know, Gone Girl and Girl on the Train and and a lot of these other, you know, different kinds, and that seems to be the popular kind of genre, and then, of course, military and political thrillers are massively, you know, popular, especially what's going on with our, sure. you know, shitty political cycle. So, um, but with, you know, but with TV, it's like they run the same thing. I see a lot of the, you know, the CSIs and the Quanticos and all these other shows. I don't know. I, I'm just, I don't get it. It's like, which, it, you're almost like, which one of the evils do you have to watch because they're both bad? But you yeah. got to watch something. Yeah. Well, and do you th- I feel like, the, with things streaming now and binge watching, I think it completely yeah. changes the way I, you watch things. Because if you go back to the way it used to be, that you know, show was on Monday at nine or whatever, you watched it every week. You missed it. You missed it. You missed it. You missed it. But also, you had a week between episodes. Yes. Now you get, you know, you go to Netflix or iTunes or whatever. You you buy a series. You've got maybe ten seasons of that series 
there, boom, you can sit there and watch them without, you know, binge watch, without breaks, whatever. And I think it really, you know, especially when you go back and watch an older show, there'll be things that you notice if you're watching them in rapid succession, the episodes in rapid succession, that you never noticed when you had that break time, you know, a week between episodes, summer off, all that kind of thing. I think it changes the way people, it must change the way people write for TV, I would think. Because, you know, you don't have as much of a pressing uh, duty to sort of bring the, the viewer up to speed. You know, sometimes when you watch an older show now, you'll be like, okay, I just saw this episode. You don't have to explain it to me. <laughs> I watched yeah, it three I minutes ago. But I also noticed that with books because I have always liked, I've always gravitated towards reading long series because I read quickly, and if I have characters I fall in love with, I want, to, I want more of them. And, you know, the more, if you read fast, the more books there are, the longer you can spend with those characters. And when you discover a series that, say, already has 15 books in it, and you've not read any of them, you've got 15 books that boom, 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 you can read in rapid succession, which is really different from reading a book, waiting a year, reading the next one, waiting a year. You know, you notice things in a different way. I think it really changes the experience of reading or watching. So, therefore, are we going to start seeing a book every six months from you because you like to have that instant gratification? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, you know what, I would so we're love to. we're going to be talking now in, in October and April. Oh, my goodness, no, no. I mean, I wish I could do that, but, you know, it takes a long time to do enough research to, to write a book. So, it does. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm glad you point that out because when you're writing a piece, a place that, you know, you've, you, know you, you might have lived in, you know, reincarnated back, but you don't really remember it. So you're writing about an era that you didn't live in and that, you know, a lot of – and everybody here did not live in. So how are you able to, you know, with the research to make sure that when people read the book, they think they're there and they feel it and they smell it and they can taste it? How are you able to kind of, you know, do that? I mean, how much, how much work goes into giving the person that fourth dimensional experience outside the book of being able to think that they're there? Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. And I like to start by reading diaries letters written by people who lived in the time because it just gives you a sense of how they, I guess not spoke, but wrote, which, you know, how you write gives some insight into how you probably spoke. It's not exactly the same. Um, You know, and I read a lot. I read a lot of academic history to get kind of the broad overview, and I will tend to focus more, well, I will look at kind of the, the big historical pieces, the politics, you know, what's going on in the world, but also, most importantly, social history, because that's really, in, for, for Emily, I mean, that's really, you know, those books are about the social history of the late Victorian era, and so I spend a lot of time looking at that. Um, but I also like to go to the place that I'm writing about. Um, it really makes a difference. I mean, I don't think it's something, you know, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I am in a position that I can do that now, um, but, you know, you can read everything about a place and go to it, and it might feel differently than you expected it would. And so I really like to try to understand what that place feels like. Um, for example, the book that I'm, I'm working on right now, I'm revising, is set in Russia. For, this is for next year. And I, in March, went to St. Petersburg. And, you know, that is a place I've been fascinated 
with since I was very young. I was fascinated by the Romanovs. I always wanted to go to the Hermitage Museum. Um, but what struck one of the things, well, many things struck me about about Petersburg. But one of the things that was really striking the year before, when I was working on a terrible beauty, I had been in Greece doing research, and you know, you've got these brilliant blue skies, that Mediterranean, you know, Aegean actually um, sea, and then the colors of of the sky. And when I was in Russia, we were really, really lucky and had phenomenal sunny weather. And what struck me was how different that blue sky in St. Petersburg was to that bright blue sky in Greece. You know, it's just these little things that, you know, a blue sky is a blue sky, but they're different. You know, the sky in Chicago is different from the sky in Wyoming. And you want, as a reader, because I, I mean, certainly from my earliest days reading, I I, I like to read to escape. I want to feel like I'm in the place. And I want to know that that sky is different than the other, a different sky. I want to feel it. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because there's a line um, where you can go too far. I don't like it. I think we've probably talked about this before. I call it the gaslit streets of London. Readers yeah. are smart. I don't need 47 pages to go through so I can understand what a place looks like. I don't, you don't want too much description, so you've got to kind of have just the right touch with that. You want the reader to feel pulled in, but not like, okay, we get it, yes, it's gaslit. You know? yeah. uh, if you're using I, too many words, then you're probably not a very good writer in explaining setting. Yeah, and I think you know, one, one thing that I wanted to do with, with the books was write historical fiction that wasn't clunky. You know, sometimes the you know yeah. it's very easy to sort of say, oh right, well they were spoken this very formal way. So if you think about the sort of stereotypical Victorian literature sorts of things, you know, dark and stormy night kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think you have to throw all those extra words in and make everything convoluted and everything sort of, I mean, I don't want to say overwritten because I don't mean it as a criticism of that literature. It's just a different style. And one of the things that I was interested in doing was writing historical fiction set in that time period, which was known for very flowery language um, and, you know, very densely written things. I mean, Dickens is not something you skim through and, you know, it's not easy reading necessarily. But what I wanted is to have historical fiction that was actually easy to read, but still true, true enough to the language. Because you know we can't we can't write exactly how Victorians spoke. Or if you go back further in time, I mean, how do we sure. know what you know? But I think you need you need to give enough to kind of get the reader's ear attuned to it and say, yes, I'm reading something that is said in the past, but not so much that you're beating them over the head with it and making it difficult to read. You know, there's the great quote, easy reading is hard writing. And I think that's really true because if a book is really easy to read, it's probably really hard to write because you've got to get that language just right. Exactly. Now, real quick, of course, I always ask, and I know you've got so many ideas maybe sitting in a drawer, but do, are we going to see anything written outside of Lady Emily, anything at all that you're going to have maybe in the next year, couple years, down the future? Are you thinking about that? Are you, are you, is, it, is it getting an itch at all or no? Well, I mean, I actually have a project that, I mean, I can't say, it's not, you know, I'm not trying to be all mysterious. Um, I know, I know. I have, you can't say I have until it's project, done. 
I have a project that I'm working on um, with a publisher that I'm, I'm excited about. It's really different. It has nothing to do with anything I've ever done before, and it's it's just going to be a, a fun fun thing to do. But I actually so that's that's one thing. Is it but then, now is it something that you approached them with, or did they approach you to do it? They approached me. They approached me. Oh, okay. And I I thought it was such an interesting project that I was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, But then I also, you know, Andrew, my husband, Andrew Grant, as you know, you guys are great friends. Um, He does. He's great. He has great books, too. He does. When's his coming out? We've got to get him on the radio. He's January. January, his hmm. new one, and it's really good. All right, I gotta have Tom call. I got we got we gotta have Tom get that one going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, but we have decided with you know we're gonna be empty nesters after this school year, and so we have yeah. actually um, we have bought a house on a four thousand acre wildlife preserve in Wyoming, and we're gonna nice. be spending a lot of time out there, and you know. Such an amazing. Maybe you and Craig Johnson can kind of get together and collaborate. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, for me, because this 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 ranch is um, there. There are lots of historic relics on it. There are ruins of old pioneer settlers' mm-hmm. houses. There are ruins from the sawmills that the railroad workers were using uh, when they were doing the transcontinental railroad. You know, and they were cutting uh-huh. ties for the the track. Um, so, you know, I've always been fascinated by awesome. by the pioneer, the westward expansion. And so, you know, I wouldn't rule out okay. someday writing something about the West. It would well, go back right hey, to my little girl roots of playing Little House on the Prairie, you know. <laughs> that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Hey, and of course, if you do, you, just, you know, let me know. I would, you know, uh, we got because we got to talk about that because that would be that would be tremendous. But. And Tasha, it is always a pleasure. This thirty minutes once a year to talk with you is wonderful. Um, we have to try to catch up sometime at an event, so you know the four of us can sit down. You know, you and Andrew and me and Shannon just have dinner and relax and just yes. get a comfortable atmosphere. But we seem to miss each other all the time, except we for Balthacon a couple of years ago. That was it. That's- but. Yeah, that was it. Well, you know, maybe we'll just have to lure you guys to Wyoming, and you'll have to come visit us. You never know. You know, you won't have to lure too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I mean, this it's just always such a pleasure to talk to you. Always. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, and enjoy. Congratulations with the book, and wish you always, of course, nothing but the best. And remember, letting them go to high school is the easy part. Yeah. All right? That's so- the easy part. <laughs> Worrying right. about what they do when they're in college, that's kind of the hard part. Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, you have this when they're babies. You think it'll be so much easier when they're older. I know. Hmm. No. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is to a point where you don't really have to worry about getting them a babysitter, but you've got to worry about what happens to the house when you come back from that's not having right. a babysitter. That is right. Although yeah. I have to say I'm very lucky he's really responsible. So. And that's good. Yeah, that's good. And let's keep that up because, you know, he's responsible because you and Andrew did the fabulous job of raising him that way, and that's the product of what that is about. Well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> All right. You have a good one and enjoy, and we will talk with you later. Sounds great. Take care, John. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So, again, everybody, that is New York Times bestselling author uh, Tasha Alexander about her latest book, A Terrible Beauty. Uh, her latest and and Lady Emily mystery series. It is available in whatever format you want. You can go to Amazon right now, pick it up. Uh, Hardcover, Kindle, Audible, it is available in all formats. And if you haven't read the Lady Emily series, jump in and get this book, go back, 
and you'll see why Tasha is one, you know, probably one of the top 15 best writers that are out there today within the genre. Uh, you'll be able to f- figure that one out real fast when you pick up her books. We also want to let you know about Lynette Easton, and her books are Without Warning and Always Watching, another author with a very strong female character uh, that she has going on. And you can get caught up in the action, danger, and the romance, and it's about her series character that is going on. And again, it's LynetteEaston.com. It's Without Warning and Always Watching, so make sure you check out what she has. Another fabulous book that Jeff and I talked about on the show was called The Ripper Gene, and it is by Michael Ransom. And this was the 2016 Best Horror Novels by the Civil Falcone Award, 2016 Serial Killer Mystery of the Year, uh, Killer Nashville's Judges Award. It is, we call it Scary as the Devil, and The Ripper Gene is the urge to kill is inside us all. And make sure you check this one out. I mean, without a doubt, read it with the lights on. But it is a fabulous read. I recommend it for everybody. Go to michaelransombooks.com. It's called The Ripper Gene. And make sure you go check that out. We're going to take just a short break so I can just get a quick drink. We'll be back with our last guest. She is Daniela Burnett. And we're going to be talking about her book, Deadly Deadly Legacy, and some other stuff. So, in the meantime, listen to this. again for joining us here on this Saturday, October the 22nd. Uh, Make sure you check the schedule. I am going to be on a vacation. I will be uh, leaving out of the country for Japan for a couple weeks here coming up next weekend, so we're going to have a little breaks into the show, Um, and then we're going to pack it all in here in November and probably take some weeks off in December for the holidays, so make sure you just keep subscribing to iTunes and getting the show so you get all the latest ones in there. The Story Blender hit last night with Tim Lowry, so make sure you check out what Stephen James is doing also. So we're going to bring on to the show. We had her on before. We're going to bring her back. She is the author of the latest book called Deadly Legacy. She is Daniela Burnett. So, Daniela, thanks so much for coming back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you again for having me here. I, I really would like to tell everybody about my book. Yeah, well, let's just jump right into it. Uh, it's called Deadly Legacy. And so give everybody a little bit idea about what you got going on. Okay, well, it's the second book in my Emmeline Kirby, uh, Gregory Longden mystery series. Um, if people have missed the first book, Lead Me Into Danger, Emmeline is a journalist and Gregory is a jewel thief. 
and they are former lovers who have crossed paths once again. Um, And now in Deadly Legacy, it's a book about stolen diamonds, revenge, and murder. So um, it's like the idea that um, started the story swirling around in the back of my mind was the uh, 2003 heist at the Antwerp Diamond Center. And if people are not familiar with that, a group of Italian thieves stole $100 million in diamonds, gold, and other jewelry. And only one man was caught, but the diamonds were never found. And this idea captivated my mind that all these beautiful diamonds were never found. And so then I thought, what if somebody did find them seven years later? And that's how the story started in my head. And then I tossed in a mystery man called Ambrose Trent. And then to tie this to an older, I I tied it to a a diamond theft that took place in World War II. The, The World War II one was of my own devising. And then, of course, within all of this, Um, There's a a couple of murders and the ongoing tension between Emmeline and and Gregory um, as uh, as the story progresses. Now, when when you're going in from book one to book two, you you Mm -hmm. kind of look back and you say, gosh, you know, maybe there's some things in book one that that I want to try to get across. And and you start progressing yourself as an author. You start challenging yourself as an author because you can only fit so much into, you know, the 300 or odd page books that that we have. So going from book one into book two now, Lead Me Into Danger and now into Deadly Legacy, how has Daniela Burnett changed uh, as an author? How have you progressed? What are people going to notice from book one to book two just about maybe the writing outside of the plot? Well, I think uh, I'm more sure of myself in terms of like uh, Emmeline's character and Gregory's character and the interaction between them. And also um, Gregory's interaction with Chief Inspector Burnell. There's always a cat and mouse um, chase between the two of them. And in terms of the dialogue, it's more uh, I'm more certain and I know what they're going to say, what how this one is going to react. So I, I just feel I, I even Deadly Legacy. I wrote it faster than I did Lead Me Into Danger, and I think that's because I became more confident in myself, and then also more confident in my characters. Yeah, and I think that that's a big plus is the is finding the confidence within your writing and within yourself. Now you, of course, now these books are set over. Um, in in England and they're set over in in the London kind of area so or in the European kind of area because you've kind of you know you you kind of take them to different places but um what was your you know behind the, the the scene you know why were you wanting to kind of set the books over there instead of maybe you know more traditionally in the United States Well, that's an easy question. That's because I've been an Anglophile since I was a little kid. Like, I devoured any books that were written about England, movies that took place in England. I'm a devoted masterpiece theater and mystery fan. So when I started writing my books, they had to be in London, one of my favorite cities, and my characters had to be British. It's just that's the way the story developed in my mind. So when you were reading, do you gravitate more to – the European authors like the Peter James and 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 uh, Val McDermott and uh, those types of authors, Mark Bellingham, when you read because of of their style or because of their setting. 
the setting. It's really more of the set. If like the story and the setting intrigues me, then rather than if it's a European author or American author, like your your previous guest, Tasha Alexander, I've been a devoted fan of hers since the beginning. And her books, first of all, the story sounded interesting. Plus, it took place in England and then also in Greece, some of the other ones. Um, so it's really the setting and the story. Those two things that always pull me into a book. Yeah. And I think when when you start getting that voice and you start putting the setting maybe as it's, uh, as another character which we're seeing a lot more and more in today's uh mysteries and in today's thrillers is you know of course you have the protagonist and you have the antagonist but now you have this third character which is the setting. So when you're kind of writing and do you remember that third character? Do you remember that the setting can be that character and really try to put people into the setting that you've created? Oh, yes, most definitely. In my books, setting is just as important as the, uh, um, enhancing the story and moving it along as Emmeline and Gregory. It's, it's, it, for me, setting is very important. It's, um, it's like wherever I've written in the book, these are places that I've been. So I want to um, convey to the reader, you know, what the sights feel like, what, what, um, what the weather feels like. I, I want them to taste everything and see everything the way I saw it when I was there. Um, so setting is an extremely important part of the story and also propelling the story forward. Mm-hmm. And so when you look going from book one into book two, and you're, you're seeing now how your characters are starting to progress, and now you start thinking about the future. Did you already have some preconceived notions, some, some things that have already been debunked? Have your characters kind of taken different paths, some different things that maybe you thought they were going to do from book one into book two? Well, actually, uh, uh, before I started writing Lead Me Into Danger, that was book one, I had the idea for the first few books in my head, because because it is a series and the characters are growing, um, I, I like to leave a little something in book one, and then uh, develop it a little bit more in book two, and then so on in book three. So I had that basic you know, the characterization and the storyline in my head, it's like, okay, well, this is happening in this one, so I have to leave a little hint here because it's going to be the next book. So I I had that idea in mind. I'm actually, uh, this is book two, Deadly Legacy, but I'm actually in the middle of book five right now. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay, so you you have, so the series is going to, is just going to progress as long as you keep finding the stories and the characters continue to be, you know, interesting, you have no set time to say, this is going to be seven books and that's all I'm going to do. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, until I can't think of any more trouble for Emmeline and Gregory to get into, um, the, the, those series will keep going. Yeah. Now, when you, now that you're saying that you're into book five and – now that you're starting to, you know, once you start reaching the half dozen point and you start reading book six, you start seeing how characters not only progress, but, you, but you're laying bombshells. I mean, you're doing a lot more things in the past. You're bringing things up that, you know, characters are able to, you know, surround themselves and how, this is how they've kind of come out of the clay mold. So, again, 
are there going to be surprises? Are people going to notice surprises? Have you have you done things that are going to take a different, you know, all of a sudden you're going down one path and then, bam, you just make a severe right-hand turn to the 90 degrees and they're like, whoa, what the heck's going on here? Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, and that, that's the most delightful part of it because it's like there are surprises that are coming up, bombshells, and, and like I'm rubbing to my hands together in glee waiting to drop them and have readers go, oh! Oh, no. So, yes, that's the most delightful part of creating all these things. Trouble trouble makes for a very good storyline. Yeah. And now, you, like you said, you know, you, you set, and, and, I don't, and I'm not really, you know, like familiar with, um, you know, when you, with, with a lot of your work. Now, because you've, you've done these things, like you said, you know, like Stolen Diamonds, uh, A Man Who Never Existed, The Game is Lethal. That's kind of like the tagline that you kind of have about this. So mm-hmm. when you're putting in, you know, like you said, the murders and then the thievery and all these different, and, and, and these different kind of elements, is it easy to lose track a little bit of what you wanted to maybe stay on focus and go one direction or the other, and you kind of have to bring yourself, you know, you're like near the end and you're like, God, I've got to bring myself back a little bit, and you kind of, you know, change things up. Does that does that happen to you? Do do you find yourself having to kind of you know hold yourself back a little bit too when you're writing? Um, not so much hold myself back because before I start writing my books, I like to have the whole storyline uh, plotted out in my head. I don't do an outline, but at least to have that basic skeleton of the plot. And of course, I do uh, change things along the way because all of a sudden a, a light bulb goes off in my head and I come up with another idea. But I like to have that line to follow so it's not so much that i hold myself back but i may add another twist or or maybe another murder to uh, make the story a little bit more exciting mm-hmm. and what 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 books are you reading right now do, do those things kind of influence you when you read uh, you know when, when you're writing the things that you're reading do you kind of see a little bit of influence from from other authors kind of creeping in um, well, not so much influence, but um, not. I look at books not only as for pleasure for me reading their particular story, but at also their style. I'm like, hmm, oh, that's the way this writer does it, and that's the way, oh, that's an idea to keep in the back of my mind different writer's style. But I don't think so much that they influence me, but perhaps because, you know, I like to read books about London, um, mystery stories, so all of those things intrigue me. And, of course, you know, ro- some romance stories, romantic suspense, because this uh, interaction between the, uh, Gregory and Emily, of course, that's an element of my stories. And when you're trying to navigate also, because, you know, you're, you're new, you're, you're, you know, you're yeah. an up-and-coming newer author, and you're trying yeah. to get yourself you know, out there and you're trying to get people to read, you know, how is that navigational part working? Because I always tell people writing the book is basically the Mm. easy part, getting people to buy it and read it. That's the hard part. So when you're putting your face, you know, nose to the ground to have to do the marketing, how is that for you? How has that experience so far been? Because it's from, from book one into book two, have you felt it's been easier for you? Is it a little easier now to kind of get out and talk and, and get yourself, uh, out there and in and, and more of a light outside of the books? 
Yes, it's a little bit easier now. The, the, it's still the social media aspect and marketing aspect of being a writer is the most difficult part for me. Because for me, I'm a writer. I write books. I'm not a marketing guru. But it has gotten easier from Lead Me Into Danger to Deadly Legacy. Um, I, and I seem to be attracting more um, fans on Facebook and so forth. Yeah. I'm trying to do uh, blog posts and... Um, talk to uh, other writers like Susan Elia McNeil. I've had some correspondence and Tracy Grant and Tessa uh, Arlen. So it is a little bit easier, but it's still the most difficult part of being a writer, this whole marketing uh, and promotion aspect. Yeah, it, that's, it's the fun part, isn't it? I mean, do you <laughs> – yeah, it is. I mean, it can be fun, and it can be it can daunting, be. because if you're doing yeah. 20 interviews, you're probably being asked 20 of the same questions, and you're like, God, I wish they would just ask me maybe, like, what the hell I had for dinner the other night, just to have <laughs> something off topic. <laughs> but I guess it comes with the territory. Yes, yes, it it most definitely does. I mean, it's something that, you know, I knew would come and so forth. Uh, I steeled myself for it, but it's still it's still the most difficult part for me. Mm-hmm. Now, when you start looking about you know your career and going forward, do you think that you're going to stay within this genre? Do you think maybe you're going to jump out? Do, do you have any ideas? Or right now, you're only focused kind of on the series, and you're really not thinking about anything as you know as your career or your profession beyond just this series. Well, at the moment, I'm focusing on this series, but uh, I think if uh, at some stage I can't think of any more um, things for Emmeline and Gregory to get into, um, I think I would still stay within the mystery, romantic, suspense genre because that appeals to me the most, and I think I get the most ideas creating uh, those types of stories rather than switching completely like to a historical romance or or uh, something like that. I mean, I like those types of books, but I think I'm the most comfortable in the mystery, spy thriller, romantic suspense um, genre. And I'm 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 just sitting here thinking... Mm -hmm. Because I, I mean, I, I feel I feel for you guys so much. I mean, <laughs> I feel for for the authors coming up, I and mean, it's so difficult to have to oh, do what you. what you guys do. Yes. So, you know, do you get other authors that haven't really published and been out there? Do they ask you questions? I mean, do you, you know what kind of advice do do you maybe give them? Um, yes, I do. I like I've been asked often, what would you uh, recommend to a, an aspiring writer? Um, how do you get through writer's block and, and those, those those kind of things? The the thing that I tell everyone, aspiring writers and so on, is to read. Re- to be a writer, you have to be a reader from the beginning and read all different kinds of things so you can get an idea of different genres, different styles, different voice. That's very important. And then the second most important thing, write the story that you want. Don't be guided by market trends or what is in at the moment. You have to write the story that you want because if you don't like the story, then it's not going to come out well. You have to love the story that you're This is the story I want to, you know, I want to get on my computer and this is what I want to do because otherwise, you know, if somebody tells me, oh, why don't you write a story about a drug dealer? It's like, 
that doesn't appeal to me. The story is not going to come out well. So those are the two most important things I, I think aspiring writers should um, consider. Well, let's just and let's take a look here uh, at the book Deadly Legacy, and let's take a look at, at your at your villain and you know aspect of him. Do you think that you have to like your villain? Do you think you have to? Uh, do you think that the readers have to kind of understand who he is in order for the character to be? Um, intriguing? How do you well, kind of I mean, aspect your villain writing when you when you decide this is the villain I want to have, you know, going forward? Well, I mean, you you ultimately uh, the reader ultimately has to understand the uh, um, villain's thinking and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to make it intriguing, well, I mean, in certain cases, like. I, I like I hate the villain from the beginning. So I know as I'm writing along, it's like okay, I have to make this to, to, for this to come out in subtle ways that you're not supposed to like this person. Um, so, but in terms of the intrigue, it's like how I would drop the clues to um, get the readers to that point to say, "Aha, uh-huh, that's the person who did it." Mm-hmm. And when you do, kind of drop those clues do you you know how do your fans kind of respond back do you do you get some emails people are like you know god you know you tricked me i had no idea this was coming and, and <laughs> those, those are, those are the things. ones i love the most <laughs> it's yeah. like oh you have a twisty brain somebody told me at that one point it's like i had never been told that it's like you have a twisty brain um but uh-huh. yeah those are the most fun because you want to leave the clue and you want to leave it in such a way that people if they go back it's like Oh yeah, that was there, but I missed it. So um, it is fun. And do you do you, do you attend a lot of conferences? Do you, do you meet a lot of people out? Uh, and you know, like the Boucher Cons and the Nash, Killer Nashvilles, the Malices, places like that. Do you or do you kind of just stay more local to your area? Um, well, I haven't attended any conferences yet because I work full time. Um, I haven't uh, yeah, attended tough. any conferences yet, but I, I think I may um, in 2017. But I am a member of the Mystery Writers of America New York chapter, and I'm very active there. So I've made a lot of contacts, and uh, it's, it's great networking, and everybody provides a lot of great advice. Yeah. And those ask, and and those organizations, you know, also, you know, there's a lot of support um, yes, that you're definitely. able to get. And when you're having some problems, you're able to maybe ask some people in there and and get some ideas and, and things like that. And and people can ask you. So there's a great support system when when you're when you're a member of one of those organizations. Oh yes, undoubtedly. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of supported of advice even before I, I received the contract for Lead Me Into Danger. I had, um, you know, they have a mentoring program and just, you know, just talking to other writers, uh, their suggestions are, are, are really wonderful. Do you get any crazy emails, like just crazy people? I mean, everybody, yeah. you know, it's just like, and you're just like, God, this person's just like crazy, or they missed the point totally of the book, or because you, you you see, I see, you know, I mean, I go through and I read reviews. And mm-hmm. I'll read reviews of books and, and stuff that I read, and I'm just like wondering, you know, how did someone else kind of capture the the book that I read or the movie that I watched? And I'm like, some reviews, and I go, did you even watch the same movie? Did you even read the same book that I read? Because I didn't get out of it what you got out of it. 
No, I haven't gotten any crazy emails like that yet or, or any attacking things. But maybe it's only because, you know, this is only the second book. So, you know, I'm still trying to get, uh, garner a, a fan uh, group and, and so forth. But maybe that will come. I hope not nasty <laughs> you, things. Not nasty yeah, things. Do, do you, I, well, no, no, not nasty. I mean just crazy, yeah. like – wow, that's what you found important in the book? Because, you know, I always hear from authors and they always go, yeah, it amazed me that, you know, they picked that one little part out of the book to either get mad at without even going like, um, you do know that there was a whole other aspect of stuff going on there, right? And it's like, so it, it always, it always, you know, human nature just, I find it so fascinating. Um, and, and, I, and I see it a lot in, in these types of things. So I always well, I like, mean, wow, that's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't gotten that, but I mean, you have to, like you said, it's a, it's a, an example of human nature. But people bring different viewpoints to a, to a, when they're reading a book. So maybe one person will pick up something that someone else does not. So that's in, in a sense, that's not really surprising. But I haven't um, gotten at that point where somebody says, "Oh, that was the most important thing for me," when something else was supposed to be more important. So. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what, um, can you give us a little bit about, you know, how people can find out about you, all the stuff that you have going on and everything else, um, that they can find out more information? Sure. Um, you can check out my website, daniellaburnett.com. I'm also on Facebook and Goodreads uh, under Daniella Burnett, and that's Burnett, B-E-R-N-E-T-T. So, and I'm, um, I have an email address where people can contact me on my website. So uh, I look forward to emails. I look forward to hearing from you, and uh, I hope people will go out and uh, dip into my series. Absolutely. Well, Daniella, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Wish you nothing but the best. It's good to see, you know, we had John for book one, now you got book two, and in and, and, and the future, I mean, it's great to see, um, you know, you progress and, and just all the authors that, you know, you just got to keep it up. I mean, it is a labor of love, and it is not easy, and it is a difficult, difficult road, but you got to keep going down. It's those barriers that you break every day, and every time you have a new book out, that makes it a little bit easier as it goes, but yeah. I wish you nothing but the best, and thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for your good wishes, and it was a pleasure. All right, bye-bye. Bye. So again, everybody, that is author Daniela Burnett, and the book is called Deadly Legacy, book two in the series. You can go find it now on Amazon. Go pick it up. Get your copy right now. The first book was Lead Me Into Danger. It's a great read. Um, you know, like I said, it's, it's like you're like some cat and mouse. It's a lot of things going on. So make sure you check out. She got some really good characters. Uh, it could be an author that you're like, hey, I discovered, you know, Daniela, and ten years ago or ten years later, you're like, yeah, I read her way back when ten years ago. So it's one of those things. I mean, you know, with so many books out there and so many different authors and things that you can get involved with, it's good when you find somebody new, somebody that you don't know. You know, that's one reason why we like to have these shows. Of course, we love you know, uh, having all these different types of authors on to give you that extra little bit of, God, I, you know, w without, without Suspense Radio, I would have never known about Daniela. So it's great to know that, you know, that these people are out there because there's so many of them. We want to thank John Land, of course. We want to thank Tasha Alexander. You want to get their book, Strong, Cold, Dead, which is John, and um, A Terrible Beauty, which is, which is Tasha. It's always great to have them on. Um, it's a great show. We are going again. We are going to be um, out for a little while, 
But, of course, the shows are always up and they're still there. The magazine is out. If you want a copy, just email me at editor at suspensemagazine.com. I'll send it to you. You can check it out. We've got some great stories. We have some great authors that are in there. Jo- Jonas Soul, a guy, Saul that I've been watching for quite some time, was able to get a hold of and get him in the magazine, Blake Crouch. So many different perspectives that we have in there. So until next time, everybody, I want to say thank you so much and enjoy. Halloween is coming up in about nine days. Halloween's going to be here just soon, and that means – that all those poor little stores that closed and then all those Halloween stores that popped up are all going to go back down again and there's not going to be anything there. So that's sad. But that's okay because then Thanksgiving comes and then, of course, now we got Christmas. So we're going to be, we're going to be into this, the holiday mood here very shortly. But until next time, everybody, enjoy. And the next time you hear us, thank God this presidential election is going to be over with and then we can finally move forward. See you later.